All right, well, we are going to be wrapping up James today. Um, I got to be honest, I'm super encouraged just by the, by the turnout this morning. We've noticed like since we've had kind of this revival and just seeing God doing incredible things in, in our church family and, and everything, um, we've noticed one of the things, one of the indicators has been our attendance has like stayed very consistent. So it doesn't really matter if it's a holiday, if it's like what the weather is like or whatever. Typically, historically, those things really drive attendance one way or the other, um, just the number of people of coming. And we've noticed that through the summer, through other um, days, it doesn't really matter. It's just like we just, people just keep coming and being together and worshiping together. And it's amazing. And this morning I thought, oh, we are really testing that. It is Thanksgiving weekend, hunting season still, right? Yeah, I know, I know, because I'm an expert at that, right? Um, hunting season and a blizzard last night. So the first snow, a blizzard. I mean, it's November, so we call this a blizzard right now. Um, they didn't get the plows out, so that means it's a blizzard. So, um, but that, I thought, man, we're really testing it this morning. And so it's just really good to be um, together with you all this morning as we wrap up um, our time in the book of James. And we wrap it up with these last couple of verses that are often kind of a, uh, just an add-on. Like if you read a commentary or do any kind of study, this is kind of the, the postscript. And it often happens in the, the epistles where the end is kind of like a final greeting. Because remember, these are letters. They're letters that are written to people. And so um, I, always, I always take comfort because I always feel like I don't always know how to land the plane in a sermon. And I think a lot of times in the, in the epistles, we see that with the writers. They're like, uh, all right, we'll greet these people. See you later. And um, we kind of treat it like that, but we forget that, okay, these are inspired words of God given to his followers. And James says something really interesting in the last couple of verses, and I think it's a a gateway and an invitation to just kind of reflect back on uh, what we have learned here in the book of James. So James 5, 19 uh, and 20 says, My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to see what you have for us in your word. Holy Spirit, let us hear your voice. And respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's this very interesting last couple of statements that James makes. Talking about, okay, I've given you this whole letter. I've told you what it looks like to live in, in light of the kingdom, which we're going to talk about. And he, and he says, look, if any of you wanders from this, of, of, from what I have taught you here, and someone brings that person back, Know that if you bring that person back, you are saving that person from death and covering a multitude of sins. This is a powerful last couple of verses that we can kind of dismiss. But James, in this, is giving a charge. He has told them, this is what it looks like to live. And then he looks at them and says, brothers and sisters. This isn't written just to the, to the elders of the church or anything like that. This is to the church as a whole. Brothers and sisters. Keep watch on one another. And if you see someone wandering, bring bring them back. It's important to know that when we look at terms like this, a a sinner, when he says, um, let let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul. He's talking about wandering away from God's kingdom. It's not just about doing bad things or committing a sin that we typically think of. This is about wandering away from God's kingdom and into their own kingdom. And he's saying it's, it's so important, it's so critical because the, the cost is great. The cost of wandering is great. And it may seem small, but it's not. He's giving that warning to them then, and and we need to hear that now. So whatever James is talking about here, as we look back and say, what does it look like to wander, and how how, how do we look for that, and what should we be called to do together in this sense of responsibility together, we have to remember that the cost of wandering away from God's kingdom is great. And often we kind of look at things that seem normal, 
And we've looked in James, just like we did in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember we said multiple times through this and through our series on the Sermon on the Mount, these words from James are not difficult to understand intellectually, but they are very hard to grasp with our hearts and with our lives. And that's the kind of wandering that James is talking about. It's not just about what we say, it's how we live. And we often kind of cover up for that because we feel like it's really not our place. Who am I to think that somebody is wandering? Who am I to try to bring them back? Aren't I, isn't that kind of being judgmental? And so we become a people who sees the wandering that James would be talking about as just normal. Because culturally, it's just normal to kind of pop in and out, to kind of live a little bit for God's kingdom and a little bit for my kingdom, to mesh the gospel with our own cultural worldviews that just seem to make sense to us. All of that are the things that James would be calling wandering. And it leads to death. And he says, whoever would bring that brother or sister back saves their soul. It's a big thing. And it's a big responsibility that he gives us in that. And we often look at it and say, like, ah, you know what, I'm just going to, we, we think it's a virtue to just say, well, I'm just going to worry about myself. And I, I don't know about you, but I find myself giving my kids sometimes conflicting advice or conflicting counsel. On one hand, I hear myself saying, hey, just worry about yourself. And then on the other hand, I say, stop thinking about yourself. Have you ever noticed that? Like we kind of do both those things. And it's because they're both true. There's a tension in which there's a heart in which we do that. There's a way in which we are to focus on ourselves. And then there's a way that we, in which that we are to focus on others and feel a sense of responsibility for others. This goes back to, to Genesis 4, 9 when, when Cain um, is asked by the Lord, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the reality is Yes. James makes it really clear here. Yes, you are. And we've, I just want to give you an example of how twisted this has become to even think about this. We often look around and we just say, you know what, I'm, I'm not really responsible. I don't know the level to which you feel responsible for the people sitting around you here today. Now, some of you are, are new. We have new visitors here today like we do every week. And so it would be very understandable that your, um, your feeling of responsibility, you might be visiting from out of town. And so your sense of responsibility for the people around you would probably be pretty generic and that would be appropriate. But is it that way towards everyone? Let me show you how twisted the enemy has made this. We, we think it's none of our business when somebody is wandering and we say, like, well, I, no, I'm not going to say anything to them. Like, who am I to say something? Like, I don't know what their situation is, so who, who am I to do that? And yet we have no problem gossiping in our culture. Like, it's so normal that I don't even know that we know all the time when we're doing it. So I, have, I say, like, oh, you know what, I, I don't have, uh, who am I to go and confront them about this or to ask them or to plead with them or to invite them back? Like, I don't want to overstep. And so instead, I'm just going to talk to other people about how they are wandering. Do you see how twisted that becomes? The enemy perverts that, and Jesus wants to redeem that and say, no, 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 no. it's the opposite. Go to your brother or sister that you are concerned about. If you're, ever, if you're ever concerned enough about a brother or sister that you would be willing to have a conversation with somebody else about them, then you should definitely be having a conversation with them. Is that fair? And that's something that we want to make sure that we're doing. And James is calling them to do that, that you have a responsibility. Look for your brothers and sisters who might be wandering and pull them back. And that's really what I want to dive into today, is this idea of what is our responsibility? What does that look like? Why does it feel so strange? And why is it such a, what's, why is it such a big deal to take responsibility? And why does that feel so strange to us? And, and it's a big deal because of something that I think really pushes against our culture and something that's hard for, ours, for, for us to wrap our brains around. And it's simply this. It's a big deal because Christianity is a team sport. We don't typically see it that way. We live in such an independent culture 
We value independence. We value autonomy. We value personal freedom. And so because that is our cultural narrative, we take that and we put it onto the scriptures and onto the gospel and we treat Christianity the same way. We tend to think of Christianity as basically an individual thing, a personal thing for me. It's my own personal faith. I have my own set of beliefs. I read the Bible, I go to church, I listen to sermons, and they are about me living a better version of my life, becoming a better person in my better individual relationship with God. And we think the same thing then for our witness. Our testimony and our witness becomes very individual. We think only and often in, in terms of our own personal testimony. And that is powerful to be sure, but it is much bigger than that. We are in this together. The covenant that God makes with us is this, represented in Jeremiah 30, but it is stated over and over and over again. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. What I want to do today is take, just zoom way out, and we're just going to rapid fire hit some things that we see in James, but this is the lens that I want us to see it through. That this is not just about your personal obedience to Jesus and your personal following of of God and love and devotion for God. You are not separate from the brothers and sisters around you. When we gather at the communion table, it is very intentional that we are around a table together. The mission of God is that he would be our God and we would be his people that we would live as citizens of the kingdom so that people would know what our God is like. And we tend to focus as a culture on what we tell people about God, what we say we believe about God. And what, what scripture has made clear is that we don't know anything about God if he doesn't show us through his actions. That we can tell everyone until we are blue in the face what God is like, but without the demonstration, it doesn't make sense. Think about it. I can tell you that God is loving. Right? That's a, that's a very plain, obvious, clear truth. But what does that mean? Have you ever tried to define love? It's a challenging word to define. How do you define it? Typically through action. In the gospel, God defines love through his actions. Jesus Christ became flesh, lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserved, and rose again, giving us his spirit that conquers sin and death. He tells us he's loving, and then he shows us what he means when he says that he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever might believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, the only reason we know what God means through his words and through his scripture is through his actions. What does it mean that God is loving? What does it mean that God is generous? What does it mean that God is forgiving? And we see it in how God has acted among his people throughout history and through the life and death of Jesus Christ. It all builds to that moment in Jesus. We see it. We see what he means when he says he's forgiving. We see what it means, what he, what he means when he says that he's compassionate. We see what he means when he says that he loves us. And now he has passed that to us because we are the body of Christ. And so what we see in Jesus that tells us and explains what God means when he says that he, are, he, is these, he is these things, now the world looks at us as we tell them about who, good, how God, who God is, and they look at us to see what we mean when we say that. You see that big picture idea, the lens through which we need to understand this? God redeems us, adopts us, makes us heirs, and transforms us so that we would live in a way that others would look and see what our God is like. And as we say true things about God, the world looks at us as a community to see what we mean. 
But we have to ask the hard question right now in our culture, what do they see? We tell people how loving God is and then we are snarky and judgmental. We tell people how generous God is and we are stingy and hoarding. We tell people how forgiving God is, but we withhold forgiveness. We tell people what a joy it is to follow Jesus while we grumble and complain. We tell people how kind God is toward sinners while we gossip about them. Do you see then why our sin is so egregious? Do you see why it's not just about like, okay, I just need to do better at this and like, okay, God, I know you want me to act in this way, so I'm going to try and be better. He's saying, look, you are my people. You get to participate in this. You get to show people what I'm like. And we together have this communal witness that we are meant to be this people of God together. I mean, imagine if I told you what a great job I had. And yet every week I seem miserable. Like every week, like if, I, if I, you were talking to me and say I worked at, for one of the companies in town and, and you asked me about my job, like, oh man, my job's the best. But then every week I talk about how I can't wait till Friday. I can't wait to get out of there. I can't wait. And how they always like force overtime on me and they always do these things and I, and I, just, I grumble and complain all the time. What are you going to believe? Are you going to believe that I really think it's a great place to work or not? And how much worse would it be, by the way, if my main job for that company was to be an ambassador for them at job fairs? That gets really bad, right? Yet that's the situation we often find ourselves as a church. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is that we have become so fixated and so concerned about not wanting to water down the gospel which is really important to not water down the gospel, but we get so fixated on that that we don't even notice how we are watering down the church. That we look at the gospel we are declaring and not looking immediately at ourselves and saying, do we look like that together? Do we manifest these incredible, glorious truths that we are saying about our God? See, everything God commands us to do is meant to draw us closer to him and to show others what he is like. And this is what James is trying to say over and over and over again. If we only speak the word, we are deceived. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If we say we have faith, if we only say that we have faith, then it is worthless. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And he goes on to say, also, faith by itself does not, if it does not have works, is dead. And so we have said, and we, we talked about that, remember that how do you know that your faith is genuine? Well, it will show in your works. And how does the world know what God is like? It will show in our works. As I thought about the book of James, I see these three main areas that get addressed often, that he addresses often, that are so critical for us today. So I just want to give a quick recap of these three areas that I hope will be really helpful. And I would just encourage you, I'm not going to unpack everything in this at all, But my hope is this. My hope is that the Holy Spirit will speak to you this morning with words that are far better and far deeper and far richer than what I can share with you. And that there might be something from his word that you would say, ah, that. And you'd press into that and consider, am I a part of this communal witness together? And that the world is watching us. They're watching how we treat one another They are watching how we face trials, and they are watching our demeanor through all of it. So how we treat one another, how we face trials, and our demeanor through all of it. And it's interesting that if you look through the New Testament, those three themes are constant. How do you interact with each other? How do you face trials and suffering? What is your demeanor and your character? Those show more clearly than anything where we put our hope and where our citizenship is. 
couple of really important notes. One is this is all done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Following Jesus is not about just following his teachings in your own strength. Like I said, it's not about looking at this and saying, okay, I need to be more forgiving. I need to be less judgmental. I need to, like, it's not about doing that. You can't do that in your own strength. None of us can. But when you surrender to Jesus, you are given new life. You are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who transforms you from the inside out, giving you a new heart, new desires, new faith, a new life. So if you hear anything in here and you feel like, ah, this is a burden, understand, like we say a lot here, that the commands of Scripture, though they are high and lofty, they are not a bar that we are trying to clear. They are a promise in us that are being fulfilled. If it was a bar that we're trying to clear, then we would just say, all right, nobody gossip. Try harder. Do better. But instead, we get to see in his commands not to gossip who we are becoming. We are becoming a people who speak life and encourage one another. That's who we're becoming in Christ. And so it's in the power of the Holy Spirit that we get to be like that. And then as we said, it's a team sport. We are meant to pull in this direction together and to help one another to be the people of God. So you see this and how a consistent theme is how you love one another, how we treat other people. And people notice that, right? People notice how we treat other people. They just do. They see us. They want to know how do we interact with each other? How do you interact as a family? How do you interact as a church? How do you interact as a team? Whatever the case is, we watch how people interact with each other and treat each other. And that will be the lens. How the, what they see in us will be the lens through which they understand how God treats them. It will be their understanding of how people treat one another, what God is like because what his kingdom is like. And we are a people who are to speak life. They watch how we speak, what our words are like. And we are to speak life because we follow the one who has the words of life. Right? We don't, so we don't gossip and slander or we don't speak harsh or dismissive words as we've talked about because our Jesus speaks words of life. Remember James 3, where he calls this out. He says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Do you hear the pleading in his voice? Brothers, this shouldn't be the way it is. Like we above all people, as we've been transformed by the word of life, that we would be speaking these words of life. And we should be characterized by that. And we should be a people who listen first. Right? People who are not easily offended. People who speak with wisdom from above. That we would be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because we know that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man is in our own kingdom and following my own way and the way I think things should be and how I think things should be dealt with and what I think other people should be doing. But in the kingdom, I'm transformed by my king who is always quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Let this be what characterizes us. People watch how we speak to one another. They watch how we serve one another. They watch how we serve, and then they know what we mean when we say that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And so we give in the kingdom. We serve those who cannot give back. Right? That's why James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He's not just talking about like, okay, these are the two things you should do and here are all the things that you shouldn't do. He's saying, look, if you want to show that you're a part of the kingdom, you care for the people that the world says don't have value. The people that the world says, like they can't give back to you because the world serves others to be served, but we in the kingdom serve others because that is how our God has served us though we have nothing to offer him back. And because of that, we don't show partiality. 
Because the kingdom is a great banquet where everyone is invited. And which is why James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So we don't show partiality. We don't spew judgment or gossip or slander or harsh words. We speak life. That's our witness. And so look at why this matters. What do you mean when the world looks at us and says, what do you mean when, we, when you say that Jesus has the words of life? Let them hear it in our words that we speak. What do we mean when we say that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve? Let them see that in how we serve others. What do we mean when we say Jesus came not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him? Let, him, let them see it in that we care more about proclaiming Jesus than condemning the sins of the world. Do you see how when we do that together as a family following James and listening to what he says, that we become a people that when we share the truth about God, the world can look at us and say, oh, that's what you mean. And they watch us as we deal with each other and they watch us as we deal with circumstances. And we know there are a lot of challenging circumstances today. I mean, every day, almost every day, we are hearing from some of you about some of the trials and struggles that you're going through. And they're hard. And every day in the world, we hear of a new tragedy. And anxiety and stress and worry are at an all-time high. But how do we respond? One of the things that the scriptures point out is you're going to look different than the world. You look like the kingdom. And one of the big ways that you're going to look different than the world is how you face these trials. See, when we meet these trials like the world, people don't understand what we mean when we say that God is sovereign or that God is in control. Those are just empty words. If he's in control, why do you worry? I've had somebody ask me that before who was not a Christian. And they said, I hear Christians say all the time God is in control, but they worry as much as everybody else. Yeah, that's a testimony. See, when we face trials, it's a clear demonstration of where our hope is. If this life is all there is, then it will show in our response. If pain is wasted and useless, then it will be met with despair. But if you believe that God is with you, if you know that he is good, and you know that he's working all things together for good for you, and that he is growing your faith and your capacity for joy, then you trust him. How we handle that adversity tells something to the world when we say God is good, God is in control. And as we've said many times, it doesn't mean that we don't grieve. We grieve. That's a powerful testimony too, to bring our grief to God. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. It looks different. We meet suffering with joy because we know God is doing great things through it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We show when we see that, when we believe that, and we say, that's what I want. I want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want to have steadfastness of faith. And so even though this circumstance right now is painful, I will trust in God to bring me through this and to produce something incredible through it. And not only that, then because I'm in that, because I'm holding on to that, even as I grieve, even as I weep, even as like it's, it feels like it's overcoming me, I'm going to hold on to that promise and I'm going to patiently wait for it. As James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
And so as we face the trials that the world also faces, we face them with a certain joy knowing what God is doing, that it's not wasted, that he's producing something in it. And because it's so great, because that thing that he is producing is so great, we endure with, with patience because it's worth it. And then we are marked then, as we endure and as we wait and as we hold on, we are marked as a people who cry out to God, knowing that he hears us. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, And then the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Do you see the power of a communal witness, of a group of people who say, I don't worry. Yes, I'm grieving. I'm grieving this diagnosis. I'm grieving this loss. I'm grieving the brokenness that's around me. But I know that God is doing something incredible in the midst of it, and what he is doing in it is so worth it. I will wait for it with patience. But that also doesn't keep me from calling out to God and saying, hurry, don't wait. Many, many times I have prayed over people who are sick or suffering and pleaded with God and saying, God, we know that you are good. We know you are bringing incredible things out of this. But I also pray, would you relieve the suffering of my brother? Would you relieve the suffering of my sister? Those are not unfaithful prayers. Those are prayers of a child that goes to their father and says, I trust you in all things. I know you know what you are doing and what you are doing is greater than anything I could possibly imagine. But as your child, I'm just asking like, please do it and deliver my brother, deliver my sister from the suffering. And as the world sees that demeanor together, not just individuals kind of doing it personally, but together as a body, then they can look at us and say, what do we mean when we say God is in control and so we don't have to worry? They'll see it in our patient endurance and joy. What do we mean when we say God is faithful? Let them see it in our patience and our boldness. What do we mean when we say God hears us? Let them see it in how we pray. The world can't possibly know what it means with the words that we're saying unless they see it. And finally, our demeanor. They watch how we treat one another. They watch how we meet trials. And James gives instruction for all these things. But they watch how we go about all of it. And we go about it marked with humility. That we have a spirit of generosity that we have wisdom that is marked with humility. It's not just what we do or what we believe, but how. Remember, as we talked about in Philippians 2, we have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, we often hold the mirror up to ourselves here. I've heard from many of you that you're like, you both love that and it's painful, but like, again, we are in this together. And so as we hold the mirror up to ourselves, are we reflecting a God who's extravagantly generous and humble and wise? See, the evidence that we belong to Jesus will be that we have his nature and that will be marked by humility. That's why James says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. See, one of the things that was happening in the early church is that people like today demonstrated how wise they were through bravado. 
and through the fancy words that they could say and the arguments that they could make and the influence that they had and the power that they had. And so they asserted themselves as leaders in the church, as people of influence. And James is saying, are you wise and understanding? Who, who are the people that you see as wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And today we live in a culture of bravado. We say, if we want to show that we know what we're talking about, we say it louder, more aggressively, and in a way that shames others. And James says, brothers and sisters, it isn't so with you. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We don't live in a culture where it's popular to be open to reason or to be peacemakers. And yet that's what James is calling the church to do. And just in case I need to remind you, he did not live in a world that was all that different from us. He did not live in a pro-Christian culture at all. He did not live in a place where if you did these things, if you actually lived in this way, that you would have worldly success and be popular in the world. He lived in a culture where if you took these stands for Jesus, you might very well be arrested and killed. Because there was a subversive culture going on. It was revolutionizing the world among them. And they were turning these powerful governments and these powerful cultures upside down. How? By being peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere and peacemakers. That's a stupid plan. Obviously, we know that the best way to go about this is to be jerks to everybody else and to force everybody to follow the things that we believe. Except that's not what James says. He says, church, you are to be this. You are the city on the hill. You are the ones that as you're declaring these incredible things about who God is, that they look at you and they see that and they say, oh, who is this God? It's not popular to be citizens of the kingdom right now. But that's who we are called to be. That's the wisdom of God that turns upside down the wisdom of the world. And James says, if you lack it, let ask, ask God. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. This is an incredible offer. And he goes on to say, don't do it doubting. Don't do it double-minded. And the whole point is, listen, if you want to understand these things from God, ask him. That if you really want that, if you really want to know him, and if you really want to follow him and understand how he's viewing things and who we are supposed to be in light of it, then ask him. doesn't matter what you scored on the ACT or the SAT or what your GPA was or what your degree is. It doesn't matter if you're articulate or not. It doesn't matter what your life experience has been. It doesn't matter. If you want that kind of wisdom, just ask him. He gives generously. Why? Because he's our father and he wants us to enjoy him and to be a part of what he is doing in the world. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Because if what you want when you go to scripture is you are looking for the wisdom that will shame others, a wisdom that will condemn others, a wisdom that will make you feel right and self-righteous and good about where you are, if that's what you're seeking, then God opposes you as you read his word. That could feel really harsh. But it's a reality. And you'll be easily deceived as you read scripture because you're not seeking the wisdom that comes from above. And I have had to confront this in myself as I go and search the scriptures and I feel myself being frustrated with some other side and I want to like rebuke them with this. And it's not in a spirit of love and gentleness and open to reason. It's I'm looking to it to make, like God, show me I'm right. 
And if that's the spirit I come to his word, I will not receive the wisdom of God. The world doesn't know what we mean when we say that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart unless they see it take shape in our humility. The world doesn't know what we mean by the wisdom of God revealed to us through his inspired, authoritative word if all they see is that we think the same way the world thinks. And the world doesn't know what we mean when we say that our God is extravagantly generous and gives to all who would come to him if they don't see it in our extravagant generosity to all. So remember, this is a team sport. None of us fulfills this perfectly. This is who we're called to be. And when someone is wandering away from those things and they're wandering away from the kingdom and how they're treating others or how they're, they're thinking about things or how they're speaking about things and how they're facing trials and adversity, I mean, call them back. And look how natural, by the way, bringing someone back who has wandered, how natural it is when we are marked like this. Someone whose life is marked by serving, who has suffered well, who speaks encouragement and life, who is humble, who is prayerfully dependent on God and consumed with love for their neighbor. That is a person I want to be brought brought back by. That is a community that I want to be a part of. And I just ask, like we ask a lot here, do you want that? Do you want that? I want that. I believe we want that. This is who we're trying to become together. One of the really encouraging things and humbling things that we've heard recently from a lot of people who have visited is there's something different going on here. And the only thing that I can think about is I just believe that the Spirit of God is moving in a really powerful way and uniting us together to have a more powerful communal witness than any of us could have individually. They're seeing groups of people. They're seeing things like I watched last night where the vast majority of, uh, of our local basketball team are kids. Someone asked me afterwards, like, well, how many of the kids um, go to your church or are part of this youth group? And I look out, and I was like, most of them. As they are seeking to love their teammates and love people that they're, that they're beating, by the way. That was great. Uh, also when they lose. When we see our teachers and the communal witness of teachers in the school, people in the healthcare, people in the shipyard, people in the factories. Like we see this communal witness and and think about it. Like how often have you been disappointed by the church? Maybe you're here for the first time and you haven't been to church in a long time because you just look at it and you say, the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. And I would just say, yes, amen. We are hypocrites saved by grace, but by God's grace, we are being transformed into who he created us to be shaped from one degree of glory to another. But think about it. How often have you read about the church in Acts or the New Testament and thought, that's not what it looks like. That's not what it feels like. Why doesn't it look like that here? Why are we not experiencing that? And, and I just want to say it's and partly because we, are, we need to say together that that's who we're going to be. That we're going to look at things like this and say together, yes, that's who we are in Christ. We're going to pursue that together. We're not going to settle and we're going to do it with gentleness and humility and kindness. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we're going to do that for one another and be open to that in ourselves. Are you willing to see, to, to see the part that you have played in cultivating whatever culture that we've cultivated? The parts that we've played where we would say, Lord, forgive me for representing you in this way, for participating in a culture that has represented you poorly. And Lord, like, let me be a part of what this is supposed to look like. Let's not water down the church. Let's be a place that is transparent and honest about our struggles so that we 
can be encouraged by one another to lay hold of the abundant life that Christ has given us. That we would love people and meet people where we are, where one another, where we meet one another. This is where I am right now. This is what I'm struggling with. And we love each other there. And then we proclaim the good news of what Christ is calling us to and the power of the Holy Spirit to lay hold of it. Let's be a community that meets trials with joy because of our confidence in God working through it. A community whose wisdom is otherworldly rather than of this world. A community that turns to God in humility, forsaking friendship with the world. A community totally dependent on God for whatever lies ahead and trusts him. A community where no one is in need because of the radical generosity toward one another. A community that is patient in their suffering. A community that prays together and knows that God hears them. A community that is quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. A community whose works demonstrate the faith that we proclaim. A community that is void of gossip and slander and harsh and dismissive words. A community void of judgment toward one another. A community that cares for one another and takes responsibility for one another. as God's family on mission. Don't settle. God is using this body to bring transformation to this community. I get to see it all the time. But it will only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit through the body of Christ. God is doing something right now that I believe is going to last for generations past when all of us are gone. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we don't have pictures of former pastors of the church up in our building or whatever. It's not going to change with me. 30 years from now, no one's going to have any clue who I was. Some of you there still know because some of you will, move, you know, will still be here by the grace of God. But what they'll know is the testimony of a body of believers who say, we're not going to settle. We're going to be the church that God has called us to be. So I want to encourage you to you, maybe, maybe you're sitting here and maybe you feel like you've been sitting on the sidelines and just kind of watching, participating, hearing the stories, coming to worship. I want to encourage you to jump in. Your gifts are needed. Not to be ticket takers to a Sunday morning show, but to be the body of Christ. To go where only you can go. To love who God has given you to love. We say it all the time. The work of the ministry is what you are doing throughout the week. I am just like this goofy, rambling rally monkey that's just supposed to like encourage you and send you out. That should have been funnier to you, but I, think, I feel like some of you are like, that is a very accurate description of you. That's what I feel like sometimes, but I'm sitting here going like, man, I'm just like the cheerleader. Like, I'm just like, go. And like, whenever I hear testimonies of what you are doing in the community, like I am just overcome. Like I'm, I'm so thankful to God. And then I ask God, like God, why do I get to be a part of this? Why do I get to be the one that gets to see them on Sunday and worship with them and then like send them out and feel the questions that I get to field from you as you're sharing the gospel, as you're loving people, as you're serving people. It's incredible. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not in that, like jump in. Let us help you get jumped in. To you who are serving the community, though, on your own, I want to encourage you. It's worth it to be invested here. Multiply yourself. If you go and serve and you're doing incredible things in the community, if you're loving people and serving them, multiply your life by taking somebody with you. Don't just view the church as like your own personal fill-up to go back out to your own personal ministry. You are here for a reason. Multiply your life so that after you are gone, five more people will pick up the torch. So I just want to encourage you right now, if you want to follow Jesus radically, this is the church for you because that's what we're trying to do. If you're seeking and you're not sure who God is, then this is the church for you. We're glad that you're here. We want If you're seeking who God is, we want to try to be an example and point you to who this Jesus is. But if you hear all this and say, I'm good. I don't need any of that. I'm content with my own version of Christianity. Then I'm just going to say, you're going to get increasingly frustrated here more and more. 
See, God makes it really clear what the purpose of the church is. We are to be his people. He is our God. And when we read letters like James, we are given this gift to show us what that looks like. And the question is, are we all in with that? Or do we want to serve our own kingdoms? I want you to be encouraged. This is happening. God is doing it. And he's going to do more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, God, that we get to be a part of it. And Lord, I know that for some sitting here, they are stirred because they have been serving and desiring this and they have been pressing in more and more to be a part of your kingdom and to to live their life just with complete abandon for you and they are experiencing that. Lord, I just pray that that would become more and more in our church family. I pray that that would be contagious. Lord, let us not water down our church family. Let us pursue you with all that we are worth. And Lord, I specifically pray for those who are here who are seeking, who don't know who you are and aren't sure what they believe. God, I pray that you would right now meet them, that they would know that they are loved and they are so welcome here for as long as they are seeking. Lord, we want to be a place for them. They know that this is a safe place to ask questions and a safe place to push back because we're not afraid of anything, Lord, because our wisdom comes from you, not from our own thoughts on how things work. Lord, I pray that they are received with humility and gentleness and encouragement. And Lord, for those of us who maybe are feeling a little bit of conviction, that we've been living our own version our own individual solo Christian life, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would gently and with kindness, would you pierce that heart and open them up to all that you have. Lord, let us not ride on the fence. Let us not be lukewarm. Let us be radically transformed for you, that our lives would look different that people would know what we mean when we say these incredible things about you because they will see it in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.